Am I on now? All right, there we go. Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out to Exodus chapter 12. If you are unfamiliar with reading the Bible, the chapter numbers are the big numbers. The verse numbers are the small numbers. Exodus is going to be the second book in the Bible, right after Genesis. If you do not own a Bible and you would like one, just come up and find me or really any member of the church after service and we will get you squared away. Our text for this morning is Exodus chapter 12, verses 33 through 42. Let me read aloud and you can follow along with me in your copy. (coughs) The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves." The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. This is God's holy, inspired inerrant and infallible word. Amen. Biblical history is cyclical in nature, but the cycles aren't static. They typically grow. They start in seed form, and then they, they enlarge as you work your way through the story. Here's how it works. If you take any theme of the Bible, you can trace that theme from the beginning of the story of salvation all the way to the end, and you can watch it grow. You can think about starting maybe as an acorn and then watching it grow up into a mighty oak tree. The same thing is true with the theme of Exodus. We've talked about this a little before, but if you weren't here for that, uh, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it. I want to give you another example of the theme of Exodus being developed throughout the Bible as we start our sermon together this morning. And it It takes us back to the life of Abraham. You can read about it later for yourself in Genesis chapter 12. I'd encourage you to do so. In in Genesis chapter 12, after the Lord forms a covenant, a relationship grounded in a promise with Abraham, we find out that there is a famine in the land. And in order to survive, Abraham and his clan, they, they go down into Egypt. Now, while they are down in Egypt, Abraham acquires an abundance of goods. His clan is fruitful, and they multiply. God blesses them. But then his family experiences oppression at the hands of Pharaoh. 
And so in response to Pharaoh's oppression, God strikes the house of Pharaoh with great plagues. Are you seeing the similarities here? Pharaoh then expels Abraham in great haste. Get out of here. And then when Abraham leaves, he takes all of his plunder with him. You tracking? This is a microcosm of the Exodus event. It's the Exodus before the Exodus. Now, we've spent the last three months walking through the Exodus story together, and we are nearly at the conclusion where Moses is going to finally lead his people through the Red Sea. But before that happens, the Israelites actually have to leave Egypt, which may be harder than you think. Just like with the story of Abraham, God must forcefully send his people out of the land. Now this morning's sermon is like basically every other sermon in the book of Exodus thus far. It's all about God's mighty hand of deliverance. If you're like, Sean, stop beating the same drum. Brothers and sisters, I'm just beating the drum the text gives us. This text is all about God's mighty hand of deliverance. And so I've got five points for you this morning in regards to God's deliverance. Point number one, God delivers his people in haste. Point number two, God delivers his people by force. Point number three, God delivers his people with a mixed multitude. Point number four, did I already say four? Did I say three? Well, this is number four for sure. Point number four, God delivers his people with plunder. And then point number five, God delivers his people under watch. Point number one, God delivers his people in haste. You might not have noticed, but there is a great deal of emphasis in this morning's text on urgency. In verse 33, we read that the Egyptians wanted the people to leave urgently. Then it says that they sent them out in haste. Now you have to remember what's happening here in the story. Plague after plague after plague, each one is more severe than the last. The final plague brings about the death of the firstborn sons of all of the households in Egypt. It was so bad that chapter 11 verse 6 says that a great cry was heard throughout all of the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. So things are really, really bad in Egypt. The land, the people, all of it utterly decimated. Those who are still alive are utterly terrified of what's going to happen next. And you can see that at the end of verse 33. Look there. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. (laughs) The Egyptians recognized whatever is happening here, it's trending in an even worse direction. And they also know, they may not be able to explain why, but they know that whatever is happening here, it has to do with this God, Yahweh. And it has to do with his people, and it has to do with their bondage. So whether they can explain what's happening or not, all they know is that this has come upon us because of these people and their God, and they need to leave. And they need to leave as fast as possible. Now that is the human perspective that is given to us in this text, the earthly perspective. That's, that's what you see in front of the curtain, but we've talked about this before. You remember that the Bible oftentimes speaks in two different perspectives. Sometimes it tells us what's happening from the human perspective, and then other times it pulls back the curtain, and God will tell us what's happening from a divine 
perspective. Now we have to remember that God is indeed the main character in this story. Moses is not the main character. Pharaoh is not the main character. The Egyptians, the Israelites, they are not the main character. God is always the main character in the story and he's always at work whether you see his hand or not. But sometimes, sometimes he reveals his hand. So Pharaoh's heart in this story is where most of that action plays out. Pharaoh's making all these decisions, and from an earthly perspective, we see things from one angle. But then every now and then the narrator will stop, and he will say something like, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would act in this way. Well, that's the divine perspective. That's the narrator letting us know what God is doing as the main character behind the scenes. But Pharaoh's heart is not the only heart that God is working on in this story. We are also told that God hardens the hearts of the Egyptians. So later in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 17, if you just want to flip over there, you can see it. Exodus chapter 14, verse 17, this is right as the people are getting ready to cross the Red Sea. It says this, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get my glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. We're talking about that next week. Man, don't miss that one. God is going to get glory over Pharaoh and his hosts. But for this week's text, what we see is that the reason why the Egyptians, I mean, the Egyptians aren't stupid. They probably weren't going to go in. I mean, that's quite foreboding, but the Lord hardened their hearts so that they would go in. So God is at work in the hearts of the Egyptians. Now the point that I'm trying to drive home, and you may be thinking I'm doing it ad nauseum, but for a reason is that whenever anything is happening in the story, in the direction of salvation, we need to understand that God is the one who is doing it. So when we come to verse 33 and we see that the Egyptians are sending the Israelites out in great haste, we should know that God is the reason why they're doing that. He is at work in their hearts. But why? Why does God care that his people leave Egypt so quickly? I mean, when you win a fight, you don't have to rush. You don't have to run. You're the victor, not the victim. You can just take your time. You can stroll. You can hang out. You can puff your chest out, you know, do your little chicken dance. So why does Israel, the victor, not the victim, why do they need to leave so quickly? I'll tell you why, and it might surprise you. I think it has less to do with what's happening in Egypt and more with what's happening, more to do with what's happening in Israel's heart. I think the principle here is that if we do not leave our bondage quickly, we may not leave at all. If we do not leave our bondage quickly, we may not leave at all. We all know people who have been in bad, dangerous harmful, oppressive situations who have been slow to leave because it's easier to suffer standing still than to gain the momentum needed to leave. A woman will stay in a relationship with an abusive man even though she needs to go. She knows it's not good, but it's just easier to stay in the relationship. She's been in this position of pain for so long. An employee stays in an oppressive work environment because it's just harder to take that next step. A church member will stay in an unhealthy church, unhealthy for any number of different reasons, because sometimes it's just hard to get up and go and to, to, to set out and to try to find something new. 
And oftentimes people who are in these situations, everyone that they know and love and trust can see it. And they're counseling them and they're telling them, this isn't good, this isn't healthy, you're in bondage, you're in sin, you're in danger, death is coming upon you, you need to go. And they don't go. And that's what oppression can do to us. That's the effect that oppression can have on us. If you've ever seen anyone who's been in a long-term abusive relationship, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They are just dying, but they cannot go. They have been paralyzed by their oppression. They have been immobilized, crippled emotionally, physically, spiritually. Oppression beats us down for so long that when the door of escape finally opens before us, we just sort of stare listlessly in the direction of the open door rather than running through it. But friends, God says you have to go now. Are you hearing me? Whatever that sin is that you're just like clinging to and you know you shouldn't be, people have been talking to you about it, the Holy Spirit's been talking to you about it, and you're just like, ah, tomorrow. No, not tomorrow, today. That relationship that you're in that you know isn't wise, you know it's sinful, you know it's dangerous, you know that Satan's using it to, to keep you down, no, not tomorrow, today. Not like, okay, today's Sunday, Monday, I'll call him on Monday. No, today. If you're here right now and this is resonating with you and there's something, like I, I can't do all of the application points in your life. There's 10,000 different possibilities. But you know exactly what God is trying to tell you this morning. And whatever that thing is, listen to me, you must leave in haste. Like today, like as soon as you leave this service, do not wait, do not linger. There's a story of lingering in the Old Testament. It's in Genesis chapter 19. You probably know it as the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. God sent his angels to bring destruction on the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but before that he sent his angels on like a, a special forces rescue mission for Lot and his family. But Lot, after being in these sinful oppressive, dark, wicked cities for so long just couldn't get up and go. This is what the text says. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. These are angels telling you, the thunder's coming. Everything is going to be, like, you got to go. And listen to what the text says next. It says, but he lingered. He lingered. This lingering thing is not just an Israelite thing. It's not just a lot thing. It's a sinner thing. It's a human thing. Sometimes we should be making a quick escape. We just linger. But friends, that will not work. When you're talking about escaping sin and death and bondage, slow just will not do. If we're going to go, we have to go now and we have to go fast. And by the way, that's what this unleavened bread stuff is all about. We saw it in last week's text. We're going to see it in next week's text. I'm probably not going to talk about it there because we've talked about it so much. But you remember the Israelites, to prepare for their journey, they had to prepare these loaves of unleavened bread. And the leaven takes time. You put a little bit of yeast in the bread, you got to let it sit. And that's when it really rises. And then you can bake it. You get more good bread that way. But God says, no, this, this journey that I'm sending you on you're going to have to go fast, so no leaven in the bread. Just make your dough and go. Put the bowl on your shoulder. I don't know how that worked, but that's what he said. Put the bowl on your shoulder and go. Now, 
Last week we saw the institution of the Passover meal with the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, uh, but we didn't really look much at that feast. Here's what you need to know about it. It was a week-long celebration, and the point of this celebration was to be a sustained reminder to the people of Israel of the need to flee sin urgently. Every week you had to go throughout your I mean, every year you had to spend a week going through your house making sure that there was no yeast in there. And then every time you made bread, which you ate every day because you were a poor ancient Near Easterner, you would have to make your bread unleavened. And you would have to season it with bitter herbs. And all that was supposed to be a reminder. So every day for seven days, once a year, every time you took a bite of bread, God was reminding you, you have to flee sin quickly. That's the point. Now, Many of our ongoing struggles with sin are because we do not do what we see the Israelites doing here. We don't flee as quickly as we should. God makes a way of escape for us like the angels with Lot, but we are lackadaisical. We linger. We say tomorrow, but tomorrow may not come. If you're going to linger anywhere, brothers and sisters, linger in grace. Flee sin, and then once you've made your way of escape, linger in grace, bask in it, hang out in it, revel in it, roll around in it, but do not linger in sin. Point number two, God delivers his people by force. Not only did God cause, cause Israel to leave quickly, but he also caused them to leave by force. The language of verse 33, it says this, the Egyptians were urgent with the people and they sent them out of the land. That's, that's forceful language, but you can see it even more in verse 39 where we are told that the Egyptians thrust the Israelites out of the land. And you have to understand, this was not a suggestion like when somebody's overstayed their welcome at your house. If, you're, if you do that at my house, I'll just stand up and go, all right, good night, bye, you know. But that's not what's happening here. This is like a, you have to go now. You have to get out. We are kicking you out. And this too is the work of God's sovereign hand in the heart of the Egyptians. Going back to the story of Lot in Genesis 19, you see that even though Lot lingered, the Lord still had mercy on him. The way that God exercised mercy on Lot was by forcibly removing him from Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen. Picking up where we left off. But he lingered. So the men, and these men are the angels, by the way. So the men seized him. This is forceful language. They seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. What we see in the story is that Lot would not flee with the urgency that the situation required, so the Lord seized him and moved him out of the way of wrath. And then in verse 16 of that verse, of that text, we are told that that was an act of mercy. When you get snatched up by the neck by God, it doesn't often feel very merciful in the moment. You ever been there? God comes along and he moves you out of the way of your own stupidity and sin. And it feels very unpleasant. 
But sometimes that's exactly what mercy requires in our lives. Imagine a little boy standing by the edge of a busy road. His father calls out to him, son, get away from the road. Cars go flying past there all the time. The son doesn't listen, and he begins to walk out into the road. And the father, seeing that, rushes towards his son. Cars are coming in both directions. The father grabs him by the shirt and flings him back onto the ground. That's mercy. The son's own naivete, ignorance, sin, stupidity, all of that together put him in the path of danger, of death. But the father rescued him. But you have to understand that the, the force, the force that was applied there, yanking him out of the way, was a necessary aspect of that salvation. The little boy probably did not enjoy it. He was actually probably terrified by it. Maybe he had a little coup contra coup, his little brain bouncing around inside of his skull, and a little neck stiffness the next day from his dad throwing him on the ground like that. But that's what mercy required. Friends, this is what God does to us. This is what God does for us. Sometimes we are just so dead set on remaining in the worst possible place that God comes along and he applies a loving and merciful force to our lives to, to save us. And it is not comfortable. It is disorienting. Uh, it, just think about what this must have been like for the Israelites. You know, no time to pack provisions. Just get your bread bowls and go. And I could just imagine the Israelites as they're making their journey just talking to each other. Well, well, what about all of our stuff? And I, I just planted my garden for the next year and I've been working on that and it was really gonna, I was, and, and couldn't you have warned us in advance? I mean, this is all just so sudden. I can hear that in the Israelites because I can hear that in my own heart. God comes along and does what he needs to do to rescue me from bondage and rather than saying, thank you, oh, I was about to die, I go, did you really have to do it that did it have to be so rough? Did you have to be so harsh? Could you have been more gentle? But sometimes force is what we need to be applied to our lives. Before moving on to point three, I want to highlight one aspect of God's glory in this story. As the, one more aspect. As the Egyptians forced Israel uh, out of Egypt so quickly. Think about what's happened here. You remember the beginning of the story? Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. Remember what Pharaoh says? I'll never. Who is Yahweh that I should listen to him? You think I'm going <laughs> to let you guys go? I'm Pharaoh. I'm God. You guys are my slaves. I've never heard of this guy, Yahweh. I'm not letting anybody go. And now here we are at the end of the story. And God did not merely get Pharaoh to let his people go. He got Pharaoh and the Egyptians to vomit the people out of the land. They were desperate. From the heart, Pharaoh and the Egyptians wanted them to go. You gotta go. You gotta get out of here. This is God's glory on display. He is in complete control. Now, you may be thinking, well, there you go. That's, that's the end of the story. The Lord utterly crushed and humbled Pharaoh. He freed his people. Off to the promised land we go. Everything is going to be smooth sailing from here. Not quite. There's a little bit of a clue, a hint in verse 32 that this war between Yahweh and Pharaoh is not quite over yet. Look at verse 32. 
Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Some commentators see in this request for what I call a goodbye blessing, you know, like get out of here, but bless me before you go, this goodbye blessing. They see in that a kind of humble acceptance from Pharaoh that Yahweh is, in fact, some kind of God. I don't think that's what's happening here. In light of everything else that we see in the story, I don't think that that's what's happening here. As we're going to see in the coming chapters, Pharaoh will once again rise up and try to defeat Yahweh. You guys remember, like every scary movie from the 80s and the 90s, the bad guy would fight and fight and then he would die, but then there was always that last scene where you knew he was going to get up and try to kill everybody just one more time when you think he possibly couldn't do it. That's, that's what this reminds me of. Pharaoh is dead. He's down for the count. There's no way. But when we get to next week's text, we're going to see that Pharaoh is going to rise up one more tr- time and try to wage war on Yahweh once again. Uh, I, I think what that tells us is that there is a pattern in Pharaoh of just not wanting to let his godhood go. Pharaoh says, if I command the stars to rise, they do. If I command the sun to set, they do. I build nations and empires, and I, I am the king of the world. And then he comes along and these slave people with their slave God, and it ruins everything. And he just, it just feels like he can't quite come to grips with the fact that he isn't the God that he thought he was. You see this all throughout the story, right? Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go that they may worship me. And he goes, well, they can worship you, but they can't go out into the wilderness. And then later he goes, okay, they can go into the wilderness, but they won't be able to go too far. I want to keep them close so I can keep an eye on them. And then right here he says, okay, you can go do whatever you want, but bless me before you go. It's like he's just trying to maintain just the last little semblance of control even as he is utterly defeated. Which makes me think about myself. And I think it should cause you to think about yourself. What area of your life are you just not willing to let go of? You you just want to maintain control in this one area. Fine, Lord, you can have your way in every area of my life, but this is one area that I just want to be in control of. Whatever that area is, it's probably an area of your life where you, like Pharaoh, mistakenly think that you are God, that you are sovereign, that you are somehow the one who causes the stars to rise and the sun to set. Point number three, God delivers his people with a mixed multitude. When you picture the Israelites leaving Egypt, I wonder what what you see in your mind. Most of us have never been around more than a few hundred people at a time. Some of us, a few thousand people. Verse 37 tells us that when Israel left Egypt the morning after the Passover, they left with 600,000 men. So back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, when it said that the people were fruitful and multiplying, like for real, okay, 600,000 men plus women and children. Commentators say this probably put the people at somewhere around 3.5 million But then verse 38 tells us that there's a a mixed multitude that went up with them, plus all of the livestock. So cows, sheep, goats, 
So whatever it is you're picturing in your mind's eye when you think of Israel fleeing Egypt, it's probably not big enough. I mean, this must have been a spectacle. The biggest crowd that you might have been in is like the, the county fair. Or maybe you've been to an Alabama, have you, raise your hand if you've been to a, like a packed out Alabama football game. Okay, I've never been to one. 100,000 people, is that right in the stadium? 100,000 people, more or less, okay. The largest event that, I was, uh, that I've ever been a part of was the March for Life in Washington, D.C. The year that I went, there were 300,000 people there. And it was just incredible. I mean, just when you look down Capitol Avenue, it just, it just seemed like the people never stopped. It was just, it was overwhelming. So to put this Exodus event in perspective, just imagine 35 completely full Bryant-Denny stadiums plus all of their livestock, all of them just pouring out of Egypt into the desert like a tidal wave. Now, with that in mind, let's ask ourselves, who is this mixed multitude that went up with Egypt? From the best that we can tell, the mixed multitude was, was a contingent of Egyptians who left Egypt with Israel during the Exodus. So a, a group of Egyptians who said, we're going to go with you. Why did they go with Israelites? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. Maybe they went because, you know, they were looking for a change of pace and scenery. You know, things are getting old in Egypt. It could be that Egypt was so utterly destroyed by the plagues that they were just kind of willing to go anywhere else and try anything new. It could also be that some of these Egyptians were convinced that Yahweh is in fact God. We're going to talk more about the mixed multitude later in the book of Exodus when we study the various rebellions in the wilderness. But for this morning, I want you to see that this, this theme of mixed multitudes is, is actually pretty common in the Bible. So I want to I say it to you like this. Until Jesus comes back, Every multitude of God is a mixed multitude. Until Jesus comes back, every multitude of God is a mixed multitude. So here in the book of Exodus, we see the Egyptians fleeing with the Israelites. That's the mixture, the Egyptians. Later, when the Israelites get to the promised land, do you remember what God told them to do when they got there? Purge the people from the land. Did they do it? Of course not. And so as Israel dwelled in the promised land, they lived with a mixed multitude. Later still, God's people will be uh, punished. They will fall under the covenant curse for disobedience and they will be sent into exile where, where they will be scattered among a mixed multitude in judgment. Even today in the new covenant church, there will be some Egyptians among God's people. This is why we have church discipline. We understand that even in the new covenant church, there will be some who cling parasitically to the body of Christ, though they are not in the covenant. But I think things get really interesting when you think about the fact that some of these Egyptians probably really believed. You see this all throughout the Bible. Foreigners, they come to Israel and they see the holiness of God and the people of God and they're drawn to it like a moth to a flame and God mercifully and graciously invites them into his household and allows them to come in and be his children. So some of these Egyptians may really have believed. They may have been like Ruth who says, okay, wherever you go, I will go. Your God will be my God. I'm on team Yahweh. That's almost certainly the case. In contrast, we also have to understand that some, if not many, of these Israelites did not believe in Yahweh. 
Oh, sure, they were part of the covenant of Abraham, but that does not mean that they shared in the faith of Abraham. So isn't that interesting? The, the mixture is mixed in several different ways. But let, me, let me end that point on this note. On the last day, there will be no confusion. On the last day, God is going to call all of his people home, and those people will be a mixed multitude, but in a different way. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation on earth, all sharing in the same faith in Christ. Egyptians and Israelites, Americans and Chinese, no nation will be left out. God will call his elect from the four corners of the earth, Brazil and Peru, South Africa and Germany, even Canada. Everyone's going to be there. On the final day, there will be no confusion. Every person who shares in the faith of Abraham, every person who shares in the faith of Moses, every person who shares in the faith of the apostles, every person who has believed on Christ and Christ alone will be fully and finally redeemed from the bondage of sin and death. They will be exiled out of this Egypt. And after rising up out of the land of death, they will be delivered to the promised land the land where God dwells, and they will be with him forever and ever. Amen. Point number four, God delivers his people with plunder. The big idea for point number four is this. The wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. The wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. Look at verses 35 and 36. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. So here we see the people of Israel obeying a command that they actually received much earlier in the story. In chapter 3, God says, I'm going to stretch out my hand. I'm going to strike Egypt. I'm going to do all these wonders. He's going to let you go. And then he says this, I will give my people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and when they go, they shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so shall you plunder the Egyptians." Much could be said about the story of plunder, and so we shall say it. I have four subpoints for you. Subpoint number one, consider the providence of God in this plunder. Consider the providence of God. This story kind of reminds me of when parents charge their adult children rent to, to live at home with them, but they just keep it all in a separate account, and then on the day when the, pa- when the kids move out and they're ready to go be adults, the parents give it back to them and say, you know, here's the down payment for your house. That's kind of what got, uh, Jackie's shaking her head, I guess that wasn't your experience, sorry. <laughs> But, and it wasn't my experience, <laughs> but that's kind of the idea, right? God was planning to take all the wealth that the Egyptians had acquired through the oppression of his people and then give it back to them on their way out of town. Now, you have to really understand that the Egyptians owed this plunder to Israel. They owed it to them. They had held them in oppression and in bondage for 400 years they owe them this as they left that's what justice demands now i want to address there's an increasingly common way that this 
text is being applied in modern American Christianity that I, I think misses the point. I don't think it's a good application, so it's going to be a quick aside, but I just want to address it. Uh, people are increasingly a, uh, applying this text to the question of reparations in the United States. This is not going to be a lecture on reparations, but I, I just want to let you know that I don't think that that's a wise application. And there's a number of different reasons. We could talk about the unbiblical idea of generational guilt or the unbiblical idea of racial headship or the unbiblical idea of delayed restitution. But without going into all of that, I just want to tell you what I think might be the wise application to our American context with our history of slavery and what we probably should have done to apply principles from the story to proper restitution. I think this story demonstrates that at bare minimum, the United States should have given the freed slaves the means of basic provision before they were released from a long history of unjust bondage into a land that was very much like a wilderness for them. That's what God is doing for them here. He's not giving them what they need to build a kingdom or a dynasty. He's just giving the people what they need to be able to live in the desert as they leave with basically nothing because they've been oppressed. In the same way, I think when we release the slaves, it would have been a fair and just thing for us to give what they needed, to give them what they needed in order to live lives, uh, lives of freedom. Forty acres and a mule seems fair to me. Secondly, subpoint number two. Consider the sovereignty of God in this plunder. When you look back at verse 36 real quick, you, you see something interesting. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. He gave them favor. When you think of plunder, you probably think of a conquering army ransacking cities and villages and using force and the threat of force to take the goods from the people. That's not what happened here. There was no violence. There was no stealing. There was no use of force. force. There was no threat of intimidation. Verse 36 tells us that the Egyptians simply gave the Israelites what they asked for because they had favor. Remember earlier we talked about God being behind the curtain, always working in people's hearts? Why would the Egyptians have favor or give favor to the Israelites? Why would the Israelites have favor with the Egyptians? Because the Lord gave it to them. In the same way that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh so that he would not let the people go, God softened the hearts of the Egyptians so that they would let their possessions go. Twice in this chapter, Israel is referred to as the host of the Lord. Host is not like, oh, we're going to receive you with doilies and, and tea. Host is a, a military term. So what God is doing here is he's calling Israel his army. And you're supposed to read that and see a clear distinction between armies of the world and armies of the Lord. An earthly army uses every means of force and violence and deception at its disposal to win a war, and then after the victory, it uses more force and violence and threats of force and violence to plunder. But not the heavenly army, not Israel. The heavenly army does not have to use force. The Lord won the battle for them. The Lord worked in the hearts of the conquered people so that they would freely give up that which justice demands. 
You remember Peter in the garden? He's swinging the sword, cutting people's ear off. He completely misunderstands what's supposed to happen in the kingdom of God. We don't win by force. The Lord goes in and changes people's hearts. Do you remember the story of the man knocking over the idol of Satan in one of the state capitals recently? Where was that? Where's Russell? Where was that? Um, I'll put you on the spot. Sorry, buddy. It was somewhere. They had like a statue to Satan in one of the state capitals, and some guy went in and knocked it down. And listen, I'm all for a good knocking down of a Satan statue. But Russell made a really great point. He said, you know, that's not really the way that this thing works. The way that we smash idols is by preaching the gospel and getting people's hearts to change so that they smash their own idols. The way that we get plunder, spiritual plunder, is not by going in and using force. It's by going in, preaching the gospel, trusting that God will work in the hearts of the people that we preach the gospel to, and then they will want to give us the spiritual plunder that we seek. God fights our battles for us. Later in chapter 14, the people are standing paralyzed by fear at the edge of the Red Sea, and this is what Moses tells them. The Lord will fight for you You need only to be still. Thirdly, consider the provision of God in this plunder. Consider the provision of God in this plunder. After 400 years of slavery, the Israelites would not have had much to show for themselves. And whatever they might have had to take with them on their journey into the wilderness, they had to leave behind because there was no time. Don't worry about a U-Haul. We got to go. So what does God do? He provides for the Israelites. He gives them plunder. Now, I know in the text it says that they got silver and gold and clothing, but I don't think that that list was meant to be exhaustive. I think it's sort of reasoning from the greatest goods that they received, assuming that they will also receive lesser goods, whatever they need to be able to survive in the wilderness. Finally, consider the judgment of God in this plunder. The Egyptians were wealthy beyond the wildest imagination of anyone in the ancient world, and they built their wealth on the blood, sweat, tears, and oppression of the people of God. But then God came to Egypt. He laid waste to everyone, to everything. Hail, locusts, darkness, disease, destruction, finally death. And then, almost as if to put a cherry on top of it all, God takes away all of the remaining earthly goods that belong to the Egyptians and gives them to his people. This plunder was a proper recompense for the evil and wicked nation of Egypt. Point number five, God delivers his people under watch. If, you, if you've ever served in the military, uh, I'm thinking like Army Marines, probably not Navy or Coast Guard or anything like that, Air Force, no. If you've ever served in the military, you probably had to pull guard duty. Guard duty is when everyone is asleep, but you're not. You have to stand watch, you have to stand guard at the gate or at the wall or at the parapet, and you have to make sure that the enemies don't come in and get everyone while they're asleep. That's what God is said to be doing in this story. Look at verse 42. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept by the Lord, uh, kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Yeah, so I think here we have God pictured as someone who's keeping 
watch over Israel on this terrifying, fateful night. God is saying, I will protect you. I will keep you safe. But then we're told that in response to this, God's people, as they celebrate the Passover, must stay up all night and keep watch to the Lord. Now, obviously, God doesn't intend for his people to think that they are actually guarding God. God doesn't need to be guarded. So what is happening here? Why does God want them to stay up all night as watch to the Lord? Here's what's happening. Remember, we're going to see this again next week. We saw it last week. It's just a big part of this chunk of Exodus. A lot is happening in this story to get the people of Israel to remember to remember. That's why they celebrate the Passover. That's why they have the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that's why they have to have this night of vigil. But what does God want them to remember? He wants them to remember that they are utterly insufficient to keep watch over themselves. Have you ever tried to stay up all night? I mean, the older I get, the harder it it is. But I mean, even when you're young, I mean, that's what kids do during sleepovers, right? The game is who can be the last one to fall asleep. But I mean, I've never, I've never seen kids that make it all the way till morning. Maybe you have. Maybe you were one of the few. But, uh, you know, the trope of the sleeping night watchman is a cliche for a reason. Because it's really, really hard to stay awake all night. When I was in basic training and everyone had to pull their guard duty times, I would wake up in the middle of the night to guys getting yelled at and cussed out all the time because they were asleep on duty when they shouldn't have been. Even on deployment where your QRF or or night duty stuff is very important, people would still fall asleep. I mean, lives are at stake. Battles are, the war is at stake and people would still fall asleep because it's just really hard to stay awake all night. We need sleep. But not God. Not God. Do you remember what happened with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? We read that in our service earlier. Jesus, God in the flesh, told his disciples, hey, listen, I'm about to go through the biggest, hardest thing ever. I'm about to give my life as the final offering, as the perfect spotless lamb of God to save the people of God. But I need to prepare as I go in to do that. I need to pray. So here's what I want you to do. I need you to stay awake and I need you to watch. And you know what happened. Jesus went off to pray. He came back. They were asleep. Jesus goes, guys, this is really important. Like, the Jews are trying to get me. The Romans are trying to get me. Satan is trying to get me. I'm about to save the world. All I need you to do, stay up, stay awake, keep watch over me while I pray. He goes back. Comes back and finds the disciples asleep again. He says, guys, please, And you know what happens. They fall asleep yet again. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. I love what Jesus says in in verse 40 of Matthew 26. You could not keep watch with me even one hour? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. God instituted this Passover vigil for the Israelites to understand what it means to be God and what it means to not be God. God does not grow tired, but we do. God cannot be distracted as he keeps watch over his people, but we can. Cannot tell tell you how many times my wife has been like, hey, please just make sure that pot doesn't boil over or make sure the kids don't chop a finger off and 
you know, sure enough, the pot boils over. We haven't lost any fingers yet, but the point is we are easily distracted. He keeps watch over his people with ease all night long. He could do every night because our God doesn't sleep. He doesn't blink. He doesn't flinch. He doesn't yawn. He doesn't nod off. But we do. The purpose of the watchman is to give peace to those who are sleeping. You get that? The purpose of the watchman is to give peace to those who are sleeping. Israel can have peace as they go through this terrifying night of the Passover and their departure from Egypt because they know that they are not being watched over by any human leader or institution. They are being watched over by God. So as we wrap up our time together in God's word, I want you to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of every aspect of God's deliverance in this story. You remember we talked about this last week. We said that there are, there are shadows in the Old Testament and they all point forward to the fulfillment of Jesus in the New Testament in the same way that your shadow points to the reality of you. And in this story, with these five points, we see Jesus fulfilling all these shadows. Jesus delivers his people quickly. Three days in the grave. Not three years, not three decades, not three centuries, not three millennia. Three days. Jesus delivers his people forcefully. Friends, when God saved you from sin and death and hell, he did not do it gently. I mean, maybe, if, maybe in his kindness he allowed you to feel like it was gentle. But the fact of the matter is that you weren't seeking God. You were walking into the road, and he came and he snatched you up by the nap of your neck. That's what regeneration is. Whenever people say Jesus is a gentleman, he would never apply force to you in your salvation, I just think you just haven't read the Bible very well. God has no problem in love coming and applying force to save your soul from hell and praise God that he is willing to be merciful to us in this way. When we are saved, Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to come and take our dead hearts, our stony hearts, and turn them into living hearts and hearts of flesh. When God saves us, when Jesus delivers us, he delivers us in a mixed multitude. But the mixed multitude on the last day will not consist of believers and unbelievers. It will be believers only from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, mixed ethnically, mixed linguistically, mixed culturally, but not mixed spiritually. We will all share in the same spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. When Jesus delivers us, he delivers us with plunder. Jesus, this is an ancient way to talk about the gospel. You can read it in the Nicene Creed. You can read it in many of the ancient creeds. When Jesus goes down into Sheol, into the land of death, the true Egypt, the land of spiritual exile, he comes out of that place after gaining victory over it by the power of God and he comes out with all the spiritual plunder. He comes out with all of the souls of those that sin and death had claimed and he says, I'm taking them back with me and I'm taking them to the promised land. And then finally, Jesus delivers us under watch. Friends, the greatest application point for you on that fifth point is not for you to keep watch. It's for you to believe that God is keeping watch over you. Jesus does not save you from Egypt and then put you in the desert and go, man, I sure hope you make it. No, he keeps watch over us all the way to the promised land. 
There will be many trials. There will be many tribulations. There will be times where we are fearful, where where maybe we will want to go back to Egypt, but God will not abandon us. He will take us all the way home because Christ gave his life for us on the cross. And on that note, let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to believe with hearts of true faith everything that we have learned about you and your salvation this morning. In your holy name we pray, amen.